ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17. Second Kings chapter 17, last week we looked at the first half of this chapter. This morning we will be looking at the second half beginning in verse 24. Second Kings chapter 17, verses 24 through 41. This is God's word. It's powerful to transform your life. Please give it your full attention. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthath, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of the Sepharvaim. And they feared the Lord and pointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord God commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. (coughs) A little over a week ago, I was poking around on CNN's website, 
And I saw a title there of a video that caught my eye. The video was called, What is a Cult? And it was about one minute long, and it was just one of their quote-unquote religious scholars just giving his idea of what a cult is. So I thought to myself, well, this ought to be good. How does CNN define a cult? If you look in a dictionary, a cult is probably the most familiar definition of a cult in the dictionary. It would be a religion or a sect that is considered to be false, unorthodox, or extremist. And so thinking of a cult in those terms, of course, I wonder, what, how would CNN, with a mainstream media worldview, how would it define a cult? What would words like false or unorthodox or extremist mean to CNN? Well, I watched that minute-long video, and he had three points that he made, kind of unhelpful. First one was, just because a group is a cult doesn't mean it's evil, he said. Second point was, there isn't much difference between a cult and a religion. And thirdly, I think his most important point was, cults are as cults do. If a cult works toward good in the world, then it's good. If a cult works towards bad or evil in the world, then it's bad. I listened to the whole video and I thought, well, there's a minute I'll never get back. What a waste of my time. I wouldn't find that helpful. But he did. I have to admit, he did say one thing that I found kind of intriguing. He said that scholars don't use the term cult. They avoid the term cult. He said, we joke cult plus time equals religion. Cult plus time equals religion. And he went on to say that most of the world's great religions, were, when that started, was considered a cult. Actually, that's from a human perspective, from a horizontal perspective, that's true. Even Christianity in the first century was considered by most of the people in the world as a Jewish cult, as a break-off group that diverted from the teachings of Judaism in the first century. But you see, the problem that this scholar had, and the problem of our culture in general, is that when a culture rejects the concept of a revealed religion, when our culture rejects the idea that our creator has spoken and has revealed to us from heaven who he is, who we are, and how he expects us to know him and serve him, if a culture rejects that idea, then it really loses all basis for defining a cult or defining what is true or what is orthodox or unorthodox. All those definitions become very man-centered. But if there is one true religion, if the one God has truly spoken and has told us these things, then all religions, all religious groups are to be measured by what he has revealed to be true. There is a standard. There is an objective, religious, spiritual standard by which we can judge religions. And so for us, the words orthodox or unorthodox or false or true are crucial concepts. And in light of that, when you think of first century Judaism and first century Christianity, which one was the cult? 
Which one diverged from what had been revealed to be true? It was Judaism in the first century that had departed from what it was revealed to be true. And Christianity that was the fulfillment of everything that was revealed to be true. Christianity was the true religion, and Judaism, by that definition, was the cult. Well, I say all this because we are looking actually centuries earlier than that, several centuries earlier, as we begin this study in 2 Kings. I told you last week, we're going to be looking at one of the greatest kings in the history of the world, but particularly in the history of Israel, in the history of Israel and Judah as the divided nation in the Old Testament. King Hezekiah. And what made King Hezekiah great was not his worldly accomplishments, although they were great. What made King Hezekiah great was his reformation that he oversaw. That when he took the corrupted, divergent, corrupt uh, religion that Judaism had become in his day, all the false worship practices that had seeped into the religion of Israel and Judah. And he took that and he did away with what was false and brought things back into conformity with what was true. And we had a reformation and revival. We're going to be looking at that in several weeks to come. But we are starting here in chapter 17, which gives us the historical context. Like we said last week, you can't understand a king or any great person outside of the context of their place in history. And what was going on, and really the defining moment we said last week of the history of Israel and Judah at that time. Again, Israel was the ten northern tribes. Judah was the, made up the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. That division among God's people was the reality. And what happened in, just before Hezekiah came to the throne was that Israel, the northern kingdom, had been destroyed. And God had declared it a judgment. He had wiped Israel off the geopolitical map and they would never be heard from again. That's the reality. That was the defining moment. And in the beginning of chapter 17, which we looked at last week, he gave his reasons for judging his people in such a manner. Three reasons we saw. The first reason was their lack of gratitude for his intervention, his, his redemption, his deliverance of them as a people. They didn't live in gratitude, but they forgot him. Secondly, they were judged for their persistent and increasing idolatry of adapting their religious ways to the ways of the nations around them. And thirdly, he said, he judged them because of their rejection of his word, of their refusal of his commandments and their conformity to the pagan ways of the nations around them. And so as we come to the end of chapter 17, Israel has been destroyed. God has used the empire of Assyria, which was an evil empire, but he used them as a rod of discipline to judge his own people and to send away into exile the people of Israel. What we have here then at the end of the chapter is the aftermath. What happened in that region of land, northern Palestine, the northern, where the northern kingdom of Israel was? What happened there and what can we learn from it? Well, Assyria, like a lot of ancient empires, had quite an ingenious way of keeping conquered peoples from rising up in rebellion again against them. 
What they would do is they would go in and they, after they had conquered a nation or city-state or a bunch of tribes, they would take those people out, or at least the best of those people. They would take the most educated, the most wealthy, the most powerful. They would take anybody of substance out of the land and then they'd scatter them all over their empire. And then they would take some of their other conquered peoples with different nationalities, different religions, different cultures, and they would force them, kind of a forced immigration, they would bring them and put them back in this land that they had just conquered. And that's what the, that's what the king of Assyria did to Israel. And so you had this vast mixed multitude, this melting pot of nationalities and religion and worldviews, all living together in the same geographical location. And the idea was to keep them from unifying against Assyria. And it worked fairly well. And I think we could have an interesting conversation in light of that about immigration policies. It's such a relevant issue these days. But, and that issue is not as simple as either side in the debate wants to make it, I'll say that much, but I'm not going to go beyond that because this isn't about immigration. It's not about geopolitical issues. What this chapter is about, we said it back in the beginning of chapter 17, it's about the church. It's about conformity to truth. It's about reformation and revival in the church of the Old Testament. That's why, the, the, the really, you always look for a defining statement where the point of a passage that the Lord is giving, where, where you find it, it's in verses 34, 33 and 34, where it says, so they, speaking of this mixed multitude, you've got some um, Israelite people, but you've got a lot of these other nations in and around them in this same geographic area, and it says, so they feared the Lord, but they served their own gods. So to this day, they do according to their former manner, they do not fear the Lord. Did you listen carefully there? He begins by saying they feared the Lord, and then he ends by saying they did not fear the Lord. Is he contradicting himself in the space of one sentence? No, he's not contradicting himself. If, you, if the original Hebrew had quote marks, we use air quotes when we say these things, you know, if it had quote marks, he would say they feared the Lord, but they didn't really fear the Lord. In other words, from man's perspective, they gave some elements of fear of the Lord, but it was so corrupted by paganism that in the eyes of God, it was not acceptable. In the eyes of God, they did not fear the Lord. And that's what he means in those two verses. As Isaiah the prophet and later Jesus quoting the Isaiah the prophet would say, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It's a cult. They've lost the essence of the faith of the, Christ, of the, uh, of the uh, Christ-centered, from an Old Testament perspective, gospel-centered faith of true believers. They had lost it, and God did not recognize their worship. It was false worship, even though some of the terminology was correct. So I want to talk a little bit this morning about the fears. If it wasn't fear of the Lord, what were the fears driving these people that inhabited the land, this mixed multitude? They were driven by real fears, fears that we would understand and empathize with, but not the kind of fears that produce the kind of fear of the Lord that brings salvation. And that's what I'll talk about in a moment. First of all, what we see in this passage is a fear of suffering, a fear of trouble. 
In verse 25, it says, they did not fear the Lord. This is talking about when they first were moved there by the king of Assyria. They did not fear the Lord. And when you see Lord in all capital letters like that, it's in the original Hebrew, it's Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the personal name that God gave to his people. They did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. The Lord made his presence known, even though he had turned his back on the people that were cast out of the land. You know, in, in the Bible, we talk about people hardening their heart towards God, and that's what we saw last week, that the people of Israel had hardened their hearts toward God. But God will eventually respond to the hardening of heart by turning people over to their sinfulness. Where, in a sense, it seems like God is totally absent and, and sinners are able to go their own way without any consequences. It's interesting that he hasn't quite turned them over yet then, has he? He's not given them over. He's not stopped interacting. He's sent a warning. Now, a pride of lions rampaging through the land doesn't sound like very, it's very much grace, but it sounds harsh, but... It's better than God leaving them to go where the way they were going. It was a warning. It's a warning judgment. God was intervening. And so the people of the land, it says in verse 26, they, they sent word back to the king of Assyria. And they said, the God of the, the land, he's mad at us. And we don't know why he's mad at us because we don't know anything about him. And so the king of Assyria says, well, okay, I've got a solution for that. Get one of those priests. He had exiled, exported all the priests. So he says, send one of them back so he can teach the people of the land about this Yahweh, this God of the land, as he saw it, so that he will be pacified, so that he'll be happy with the people, so they can live warm and safe and comfortable and prosperous lives. And so that's what they did. One of the priests came back and began to teach. Well, before you get too excited about that, understand this is one of Israel's priests. So, you know, generation after generation, century after century, Israel's priests have been teaching a corrupt version of the true faith. And so there was truth brought. And certainly he would have come back and he would have taught some snippets of truth from God's word. But it was corrupted by a lot of paganism. And matter of fact, it says he set up shop in Bethel. Well, if you know anything about the history of the northern kingdom of Israel, King Jeroboam, the wicked king who was the first significant king of, of, of the northern kingdom of Israel, he set up two false worship centers. He put golden calves, which were the false gods they worshipped at the foot of Mount Sinai. He put golden calves in Dan and Bethel. And he did this so that the people wouldn't go to Jerusalem to worship in the site that God had chosen for worship to take place among his people. And so these were places of rebellion, they were places of paganism, and this is where this false priest, this apostate priest, comes to set up his, his teaching. And so it was paganism, but it was Jewish-flavored paganism. There was some truth sprinkled in among it, even if it was greatly distorted. And they did this to pacify Yahweh. You see, they feared Yahweh, but they didn't fear him in the sense that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They feared the suffering that he could bring. He feared, they feared the lions, and they didn't really want to know Yahweh. They didn't want to serve Yahweh. They didn't want to have an intimate relationship with Yahweh. What they wanted was for their lives to be lion-proofed. 
And that's why they brought this priest in. And I'm sure they went to him and they said, just tell us how much we have to do. How many sacrifices do we have to make? What rules do we have to keep to make this Yahweh happy so he'll let us alone and stop sending the lions? You see, they figured Yahweh was just like their weak, limited, tribal gods. In wartime, they called that foxhole religion. You know, the kind of interest in spiritual things, interest in God, interest in doing the right thing that comes when you're your life is in danger when you're at the bottom of the foxhole when bullets are whizzing past your head and you say, God, you know, if you just get me out of this, you know, I'm suffering now, I'm in danger now, but you get me out of this, I'll live for you, I'll give you, I'll give you the rest of my life, whatever you want. And then once the war is over and you go back to your comfortable life and you forget all about him. In the prison, they call it jailhouse religion, you know. God, get me out of this jail, I can't take it anymore. I'll live my life for you if you just put me back out on the street again. And then they forget all about him when they get back out on the street. This is pagan fear of the Lord. Fearing the consequences, but no real desire to know him and to have a relationship with him. Remember after 9-11, there was a lot of talk about revival. Churches filled up for a while. For several months, people wanted to know about God, what they might have been doing wrong, because they lived in fear. But soon as six months went by, eight months, 12 months, five years went by, and no significant terrorist attack. It's amazing how in just a period of months, everybody went back to the way they were because it was pagan fear of God, not saving fear of the Lord. But again, I just want to, before I leave this point, I want to point out what an act of grace that God actually gave them a warning judgment. He didn't have to do that. He could have just let them go their merry pagan way, had nothing more to do with them, but he left a witness to his justice, a witness to his presence, and he would later use that. I don't know about you, but in my own testimony, in my own story of my spiritual journey, I spent several years fearing the judgment of God before I ever understood the gospel. Fearing, people had told me that this Jesus Christ that was raised from the dead was going to come back someday and that if we didn't know him and didn't, he wasn't our Lord and Savior, we'd be lost. They had told me that and I didn't, wasn't ready to accept the gospel, but I was afraid of this Jesus that might come back and catch me in the midst of my sin. And the Lord used that fear and I'm thankful for it. But then there's a second kind of fear in this passage, what I'm calling the fear of losing your traditions. The fear of breaking with your past. The fear of losing your cultural and religious identity. When these new immigrants from all these nations settled into the region that had been Israel, they of course brought with them their beliefs, their worldview, their religion, their worship practices. They brought it all with them. These people, you know, all the other nations were polytheistic in that day and age. They believed in many gods. They may have one god that they're particularly devoted to, but they believed there were lots of other gods around. And these gods were usually tied to forces of nature. And a lot of times they were territorial. So if you were in a certain geographical space, then there, was, there were a particular god or several gods that had influence over your life. That was basically the worldview, the religious worldview of the rest of the world besides Israel at this point. 
Look at verse 29. It says, but every nation still made gods of its own. All these immigrants, they kept making their own gods. Now, they wouldn't have said it's their own gods. They would have said, hey, these are the gods that I worshipped in that nation, in my hometown. These are the gods that my father taught me to worship. These are the gods that my grandfather taught me to worship. I didn't make up these gods. Well, that's not what the writer is saying. The writer's writing from the perspective of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, these are man-made gods. They're not the gods. This is not the God that's been revealed. This is, these are the gods of man. And it was actually quite a menagerie of gods, these funny names that you'll find uh, over here in uh, verse 30 and beyond. i just curious. I did some research to find out what we know about these gods. It's hard to find out religious information from before the time of Christ. But they actually, interesting, I could find pictures that they used to represent all these gods. And it's quite a menagerie. I mean literally a menagerie because one was a hen god and one was a rooster god. One was a goat dog, and one was a dog god, and one was a donkey god, one was a mule god, and one was a horse god, and see how delicately they can make those distinctions between the kinds of gods. Typically, animals were the representation of these gods because, as we look at things from what God has revealed to be true, they worshiped the creation instead of the creator. And the fear that drove them in their religions was a fear of natural forces, Things outside of their control. So again, it goes back to their fear of suffering. And their drive to have an easy, comfortable, healthy, prosperous life in this fallen world. As Romans 1 put it, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It goes on to say in verse 32 that they appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests. So the priest that came from Israel, this apostate priest that would have come from Israel, wasn't enough for them, so they made their own priests, again, to teach their own religions, their own man-made beliefs. And then you have that very sad verse at the end, verse 41. So these nations feared the Lord, quote-unquote, feared the Lord, and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. You see, that's the tragedy of false religion as it gets passed down from generation to generation. You know, tradition is a great thing if tradition conforms to truth, but if tradition conforms to falsehood, it's a deadly thing. You know, think about it. Think about how the Lord has worked in your life. If you're really a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, how has he brought you out of false traditions, false beliefs? I mean, I, if we did a vote, this might be interesting, a survey this morning to say, how many of you believe your theology is exactly the same today as it was when you were 12 years old or 14 years old? Think about where the Lord has brought you and how you got to where you are. Hopefully it's because you've been comparing what you've been taught, either in your family or in your school or in your friend group or, you know, whatever your culture. You've taken what's been taught to you, the traditions around you, and you've measured them by the truth of God's word. And you've embraced what God's word teaches and you've rejected what the rest of the world has taught you. Hopefully that's how you've gotten to where you are. The family was designed by God to make sure that the revealed religion, the true, one true faith, where God revealed himself and his view of man and, and what's wrong with man and how to be right with God again, 
that that has been taught from generation to generation, it's, and it's every generation has been diligent to make sure that time and, and influences and culture and false religions hasn't crept in to corrupt any of that. Hopefully that's what happens in a good godly family. But often we have to reject what our families have taught us in order to embrace what God has revealed to be true. And many of us have known that experience. In scripture we are told that we are to teach these things diligently to our children. And it is the most solemn responsibility of every parent in every generation to compare what your culture is teaching, what your family taught you, everything you know, compare it with truth and then pass on the truth to your children, not the traditions that are wrong. And you know what it's like. Every, every person has to go through this developmental stage. Some, of them go, some people go through it suddenly. Some people go through it over a long period of time. But you go through a period of life in your life where you question, do I believe what I believe because my parents taught me this, or my school taught me this, or my friends taught me this, or do I believe this because I believe that this is what God has revealed to be true? Everybody has to go through that. And sometimes it's a very dangerous transition where if you're raised in a godly family and you're taught the true faith as it's revealed in scripture, you still have to go through that and say, do I believe this because God has said it's true or do I believe it because my parents said it's true or my grandparents or my teachers? See, we're talking about the difference between true religion and a cult. There's one true religion, everything else is a cult. Everything else is a corruption of that and a distortion of that. What happened here in this northern region that used to be Israel and now is becoming called Samaria after the capital city of Samaria, this was the beginning of what in Jesus' day, the day of Jesus and the apostles was called the Samaritan race. That's how they got so messed up. You know, Jews didn't associate with Samaritans because there was a, there was a good reason for that in one way. They, certainly the Jews took it in a sinful direction, but there's a good reason because they were so messed up in their theology. They, they believed a cult, they were practicing a cult, and it wasn't true fear of the Lord. And so they wouldn't associate with that. Unfortunately, they took it to a personal distaste for and racist distaste for the Samaritans that Jesus denounced. That's what we have in verse 34, this summary. To this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded because it was worldly fear it was pagan fear of Yahweh not the saving fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom and that leads to true salvation but I love the fact that in this chapter and chapter 17 is a very discouraging despairing dark chapter but there is hope here and it begins in verse 35 look there in verse 35 from basically from verse 35 to verse 39 you have the gospel the gospel is spelled out there as it was understood in the Old Covenant for the Old Testament church. What he says basically in those verses, and he's using again the language of Deuteronomy. Why the language of Deuteronomy? Because the book of Deuteronomy is the book of the covenant. It's where God explained, he called to himself the people of Israel, and he said, you, I will be your God, you will be my people. Here is what I've already done for you. I have already delivered you. And I am now giving you my word that you might live under my lordship. It was the gospel. And so you have it spelled out here. He says here, Yahweh is the one true God, 
Forsake all these false gods. Yahweh is the one true God. All other gods are to be rejected. Secondly, he says, I am the one who has redeemed you. I am the one who has delivered you from bondage. I am the one who by grace and grace alone have called you to be my people, to belong to me. And I have promised to provide for you. I am the one who has given you sacrifices, not the pagan sacrifices that are driven by worldly fears. I have given you a sacrifice that has nothing to do with what you do to please me. It's about what I promise to do to ultimately deliver you. It's about atonement, because with the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sin. It's about a sacrifice. It's about something else bearing the wrath of God, someone else ultimately bearing the wrath of God instead of you bearing the wrath of God for eternity for your sins. That's what he's alluding to in these verses. I have given you sacrifices to offer to me that are about what I will do for you, and then I have given you my commandments. I have given you my word. I have spoken to you. And so therefore, remember the covenant. You see that phrase in verse 38? Remember the covenant. What's he saying? Remember the gospel. Remember the basis of your relationship with me. Remember what I have done to bring you to myself, to reconcile you to myself. Remember the covenant. And then he ends in verse 39 with this great covenant promise. You shall fear the Lord your God. Real fear. The fear that is reverence. The fear that is trust. The fear that is love and thankfulness. That kind of fear that scripture defines that is the beginning of wisdom. You shall fear the Lord your God and he will deliver you out of the hand of your enemies. There's the gospel. You see, that's the true faith. This covenant that he's describing, that's the true religion. It's what we call Christianity now because it's about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. It's not a do-it-yourself man-made religion. We fear the creator who is Jesus Christ, not the creation. And our religion is a revealed religion, defined by God, not by man. And so therefore, we have a very clear definition for a cult. A cult is any religion that takes away from the covenant of grace, the gospel, anything that undermines or takes away or denies the essentials of the gospel. Notice I didn't say you have to believe everything in Scripture the same way in order to be a part of the true church because we do disagree on some secondary things. We disagree on issues like end times prophecy. We disagree on church government. We disagree on baptism. We disagree on a lot of things while still being a part of the true church. But you don't mess with the covenant of grace because that is the gospel. That's why we've always talked about the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the, the Creed of Chalcedon. These are the great creeds of the church that define what the covenant of grace teaches in detail. That's the revealed religion, the one true religion. Everything else is a cult. And it's all about the cross of Jesus Christ. But having said all that, I want to praise God this morning that sometimes he sends us in our worldly fears, our selfish fears, self-centered fears, he sends us reminders of his judgment. And that he, even when we're in the midst of bad churches that teach only sprinkled nuggets of truth here and there, that teach a lot of falsehood and actually even deny the gospel, that still sometimes 
He leaves a testimony for himself, even among apostate preachers and, and teachers. Because that's my testimony. I was raised in a church that didn't preach the gospel. I, raised, I was raised in a church that was just a social group that uh, had some historic resemblances to Christianity, but denied the essence of the gospel. And I wasn't taught the gospel. I never knew the gospel through the church I was in. But I tell you what, I got enough of the message to know that I was afraid that Jesus Christ was going to come back again and that I would be lost. I had a fear of hell by God's grace. That's the work of his spirit in me. And so I feared judgment. And I'm so thankful for the small evidences of God's judgment that I saw in my life that kept me fearing in that sense because it was preparing me to hear the covenant of grace, the gospel that could save me. And I didn't hear that in my church. I had to hear it from family members. But I heard it. And I came to know the one true God who created all things and then went to the cross and died for our sins, was raised from the dead, and now sits on the throne on high as Lord over all things and will one day return to make salvation perfect. That is the gospel. And that is the foundation of the true church. Let's be faithful in our generation not just to our children, but to ourselves, to keep going back to God's word, to make sure that this is what we're teaching, that we're a member of the true church of Christ, and we're advancing the kingdom of God on earth through the preaching of the gospel, as it's defined in God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God that gives us grace. We thank you for the word of God that defines who the church is and defines the essential doctrines of the church and sets the boundaries of the church, that sets the boundaries of truth. And Lord, we thank you that in a world that is groping for some version of truth that is very self-centered and refuses to come to the word of God, we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in our witness. We do not believe because we're more intelligent or more spiritual. We believe because your Holy Spirit has opened our eyes and has changed our hearts. And we pray that we would see that kind of miracle happening around us as we proclaim the word of God, that others might believe the truth and come to know you through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing, Jesus, draw me ever nearer. Let's stand as we sing these three stanzas in chorus. Let's stand.